Hey firecrackers, it's Naomi and welcome to the firecracker department. As always, we start out our podcast with some shout outs. And so I'm shouting out you. Yeah, you. And you're like, how does she know? Is she watching me? This is getting weird. No, I just know you're listening and I want you to know I believe in you. I believe in you because you are a person that takes a step to listen to a podcast like this because you're searching, because you're maybe looking for some inspiration, but you're a creative force and just open that door. I know you're going to walk through it and take creative action beautifully. So I am taking this moment and shouting out you big time. Go get them and let me know what you're working on at firecracker DEPT. All the team loves to see what people are creating and how we've inspired people. Just the other day, we have a Sunday brunch every Sunday, go figure, at 9 a.m. Pacific time, 12 o'clock Eastern time. And we were talking, anybody's welcome, by the way. It's a really fun way of being around your people and getting inspired. And one of them had said that they'd written two plays since joining the firecrack department just because they were so inspired by the folks around them. So shout out to you all. I'm, I'm a fan and uh, you inspire me just as much as maybe Firecrack Department inspires you. Okay, we have a brand new Real Women's Network creator spotlight for you. In November, we announced our partnership with Real Women's Network and interviewed Real Women's Network co-founder and creator of the Venice series, Crystal Chappelle. Now, if you haven't heard that episode yet, here's the deal. The Real Women's Network is a new online streaming service that showcases films, series, documentaries, podcasts, and digital content, all created by women filmmakers and content creators. That's kick ass, isn't it? I mean, it's just an amazing thing. Somebody like Crystal Chappelle, who has this incredible career, and she's been a soap opera star, and she's been a writer and director and producer, and then she's like, oh, I got some extra time in my life. I'm gonna start this whole platform to support female creators. So that's amazing to me, so inspiring. So their goal is to support and promote independent projects by women and help grow the creators' audiences, right? That's our jam, right? It's a perfect match. So we're taking action and signal boosting each other with this podcast Firecracker Spotlight series. I'm gonna sit down with one of the creators featured on the platform and talk about their journey, their work, and then you can stream their shows and features directly from Real Women's Network. It's like the perfect package. Find out about the filmmaker, watch their work, or watch their work and then find out about them. Our second Real Women's Network Spotlight guest is two-time Emmy-nominated actor, documentary filmmaker, Andrea Evans. She has starred on four different soap operas on three different networks, I have so much respect for soap opera stars. They have such a grueling schedule and the just the line memorization alone makes my head spin. So hats off. Currently, Andrea is the executive producer of the documentary Rocking the Couch. It's it's a hard hitting documentary, I have to say, revolving around the Hollywood quote casting couch featuring quite emotional interviews and a true hashtag me too story. Uh, the documentary is streaming right now on Amazon on Amazon Prime and of course Real Women's Network. It's a it's a fantastic insight into a very challenging discussion and subject, but uh, it's done really really well. Andrea Evans has such a variety of experience from soaps to docs to radio to theater. She's a firecracker of all trades. She also is a mother, a cancer survivor, a former magazine columnist, and is currently working on her first cookbook. Right? What does that spell to you? It spells firecracker to me. All right, let's get to it. Here she is, Andrea Evans. Gosh, you know, you sort of delve into some research and you, um, 
like I become become such a fan. I could become a quick oh. fan of yours based on well, like your you. career and your roles that you have. And now you've got this new role as a producer. Like it feels really? like you've been wearing so many hats in your oh. lifetime. I don't know if that's true, but <laughs> thank you. I'm glad. I'm glad you think so. Oh. <laughs> I mean, okay, I'm looking at your your life's time and your career with you mm -hmm. being not only like a soap opera star, but also in theater. And you mm -hmm. also had like a cooking blog and you also yes. are a Me Too advocate and a yes. stalking survivor and yes. cancer survivor. Like I, yes. I'm telling you, documentary filmmaker, what can't I, this woman do? I'm getting tired just listening to you. <laughs> <laughs> So out of all those hats that you wear, what, what do you feel is the most comfortable and the most proud hat that you wear? Well, of course. I mean, I'm, I'm a mother and a wife as well, but I'm... Um, oh, yeah, I forgot to throw those two in. <laughs> I'm an actress. Just throw those first. Yeah. <laughs> throw those in. Yeah, no, I'm an actress first and foremost. I mean, I love what I do. I feel blessed that people actually pay me to do what I would probably do for free because uh, it's just, I, I came out of the womb wanting to be an actress and here I still am. So I'm blessed. Is it really, was it from the get-go that you were like, I know I'm going to be one of those people. I know I'm going to be an actor. There was never a way Yeah, absolutely. In fact, you know, on Facebook, a childhood friend reconnected with me and they said, you know, I remember in grade school, you telling me that you were going to be a TV star. And then you did. <laughs> so, wow. yeah, yeah, no, I, I just have always wanted to be an actor. I, I love it. And so when along your journey, was there ever a time that you wavered and went like, I feel like, you know, I've been, you've been an actor longer than I have been, but I feel like in everybody's journey, there's a time when you're like, well, this is, this is hard. This is almost too hard. I'm going to have to find something else to do. Did you ever have that moment? No, I never have. Wow. I, I don't know why. I just, um, yeah, I've always just felt that this was, this was my calling, I guess. This was, I was meant to entertain people. That's what I do. And um, I, I love everything about it. I even joke with some of my friends that if I haven't worked in a little while, that I, I need to go visit them on the set because I need some, I need some set therapy. <laughs> oh, I get that. I yeah. so get that. Don't you feel that right now with COVID, like that you're so craving set therapy? Well, I was very fortunate. I actually, because I'm on a series now called The Bay, um, which is on Amazon. And we actually just completed our season six. It was really interesting how we did it. We did it, um, I call it our own little um, NBA bubble, because we, uh, we did it on a ranch up north of Los Angeles. We had the whole property to ourselves. The crew quarantined before we got there. All actors had to stay a certain amount of time and get tested uh, very regularly. And um, everything was very safe. And so we were able to very quickly wow. do our season six. That's so I'm also amazing. blessed that I, got, that I got to work during this time. And it truly did feel like yeah. a blessing. Yeah, because it's part of our makeup too. Don't mm -hmm. you feel like when you're, when you, even when you go on hiatus, that there's part of you that's just like, oh, I miss that. I miss that yeah. cozy sweater of, of acting. Absolutely. My husband says I get grumpy when I don't work. <laughs> so he's always happy to have work. <laughs> well, luckily you work all the time. Like I was looking at your past credits and I thought, what was your 
what was your mind like when you booked Chips, like which is one of your first credits? Yeah, I'm in comparison so to now. <laughs> yeah, uh, but like now, like I would love to know the, the difference. Go ahead. I don't know. I'm always excited. You know, any which way, whatever the job, whatever the age. Um, uh, I'm always excited at booking something. Chips was exciting for me because I loved that show. Like everybody in America, yeah. you know, I used to watch that show constantly. Um, yeah. So it was a, a lot of fun. Yeah. Did you feel like that was a, like a reassurance role? Like when you booked Chips that you were like, okay, it's going to be okay. I'm going to be an actor full time now. Well, um, yeah. Yeah. And again, I, I probably stupidly, I mean, I, I'd like to say it was because I was so sure of myself or something, but maybe it was naivete, but I always felt that way. Like an even more important job for me, I remember was this mini series I did early on called The Awakening Land. And um, it was for Warner Brothers and it was, it was a big job. And it was, I was playing Elizabeth Montgomery's daughter-in-law. I married her son, it was a pioneer epic, so it was lots of fun. But I, when I was a little girl, I used to love Bewitched. I used to think she was so beautiful. Yes. Um, I used to practice crinkling my nose up, hoping something would happen. <laughs> right. Yes. And, um, I still remember to this day walking out on the set, which is when I first met her. And she was every bit as beautiful, even though it was a pioneer epic, so none of us really had on any makeup or anything. And um, she was so beautiful and so gracious. And I was like, oh, I'm where I'm supposed to be. Yeah. This is what I want to do. Mm-hmm. Oh, I, I know that feeling so well. Oh, my gosh. Um, do you feel like your vision of what making it has changed? You know, like when we first started our acting career, we're like, oh, I'm going to make it, or, I, or success. Like, what has changed with your vision of success in the last 20 years? I think our, our vision of what success is changes as we go along. Like um, the documentary executive producing. I never in my wildest dreams thought I would be a producer. No. Um, I, ne I never thought about it, and it happened in a heartbeat. And I, I loved it. And yeah, that's a different kind of success. The fact that it's a, a bit of a social statement and things like that is, again, a different kind of success. Um, I think just different things in your life, you look at them different and each one propels you that you want to do. You want to keep moving and do something different. I was scared to death to, to produce. But to me, you? When you, yeah, but when you jump into something you're afraid of, I think that's when you really grow. You know, that's when mm. things get interesting. Yeah. How are you with fear? Are you somebody that like is drawn to it or repelled by it? I'm drawn to it, conquering it. I'm, I'm drawn to conquering fear. Always. Right. Always. Yeah. Do you, do you remember a time like in your acting career when you faced a fear and overcame it? Like, do you have a story like that? Yeah, on one, <laughs> on one Life to Live, I did a storyline where uh, my character goes over the Iguazu Falls in Argentina. Now, they made yes. three life-size dummies of me that go over the falls because you can't go over the falls and survive. 
I mean, all three of the dummies, as we watched them go over, go over, exploded on impact. You know, it's, it's, yeah, there's no way you could survive that. But in order to make it work, I had to be in a boat about 20 feet before going over the falls. They had all these rope things and all these um, men who were native to the area that did this for, for different shoots and things like that, that were there with me and I'm tied up in the boat. I was scared to death. I was so scared to get into that boat. Yeah. Um, but, you know, you have to overcome your fears. And logically, I mean, it's like, you know, there's all these people there. You know, it's not like I'm there by myself. <laughs> and right. I made, made, made them leave my ties a little loose. So God forbid I could get out if I had to. And but it was really frightening. It, it was, I mean, you could yeah. hear, I, I could hardly hear anybody because the sound of the waterfall was so loud. I mean, and, and you know, people are yeah. screaming at you to what to do and you can't hear them. And it, you know, it, it was a very scary thing. But you don't start acting going, you know, I bet there's going to be a time in my life when I'm scared for my life on set. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? We're like challenged emotionally, but not right. Right. physically like that. Yeah. But, and then you know, something like, yeah. Yeah. But sometimes you are challenged physically, you know, in fight scenes and in things like that. Um, but that's, that's part of the job. And you just kind of have to flow with it. Make sure you're safe so that you feel comfortable, at least as comfortable as you can be. Um, even though in my mm -hmm. mind, I knew I was safe. Hearing the roar of the waterfall, I didn't feel so safe. Um, oh. But <laughs> seeing the dummies explode might have made me feel a little bit. Yeah, yeah that's a little worrisome. But yeah. um, just a little. It's part of the job. I mean, uh, we've all been hurt in yeah. stunts sometimes, I think. And, you know, mildly hurt or things like that. But we move on. Yeah. And what about vulnerability? Have you, when's the last time you were challenged on set with your level of vulnerability? Oh, that's a good question. Um, wow. That's it. That, isn't that funny that that's an even harder question to ask? Um, it might be so instinctual for, for you right now that you, cause you've been an actor for so long that you don't even know when yeah, I it is challenging. I don't really even know that you think about that so much because, you know, vulnerability yeah. is such a part of our job. You have to be vulnerable. You have to be open. You, you have to be open to all these things. And mm -hmm. um, yeah, I do think it's so much a part, whereas the stunts are going over a waterfall is not an everyday occurrence. Yeah. But and the, I mean, I also look, yeah, go ahead. But yeah, but being, uh, you know, yeah, it's an everyday occurrence. You have to be vulnerable. I think particularly in film and in television, you know, there, there's no way to fake it because, you know, it's all in your eyes. It's all in, it has to be real. And in theater, to some degree, you can fake it because it's not mm -hmm. right in your face. They're, you know, they're right. 30, 50, 100 feet away, whatever. Um, but, but the camera's right there. And you can't, you can't lie to it. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and you know, like when you see yourself on camera and you're like, oh, I've, I've seen like shots of myself or scenes and I'm like, oh, sneakers, they, they got you there. I don't feel like I yeah. really explore the deepest level of my vulnerability or not. Well, a secret about me, I have yet to watch myself on TV. I don't watch myself. No, ever. No. Ever. Even from chips. 
even from chips. Wow. You know what? I completely understand that. And I wish I didn't have to like, you know, I put my demo reel together and I have to watch <laughs> myself, but I think I really understand that. Cause when, as soon as I start watching myself, it makes me so, I don't know, self-conscious and yeah. Yeah. I'm, yeah. I'm too vain. I can't, you know, of course I caught snippets here and there, but I try to like run from the room, get away from <laughs> as much as I can. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I get that. Yeah, I'm far too vain. I, I can't do it because then I'll be, instead of thinking about what I'm supposed to be doing, I'll be thinking like, oh, is this my best angle? Should I stand this way to look thinner? Should oh. I, you know, it, it will not be about the acting. It will be about how I look. And oh my God. that's not what I yes. want. No, look at me. I'm looking at the Zoom constantly going, is my hair? Is it all right? Like, you know, I'm, it's ridiculous. These Zooms are not. That's <laughs> one thing I think has been really interesting about this time is seeing how everybody uh, that you know from television or film does their own hair and makeup. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. But I, used to think I, also... I, was, I used to think I was the oh, worst yeah, at ahead. it in the whole world. And now I've discovered, yeah, I'm bad, but uh, I'm not as bad as some people. <laughs> Yeah, I, I recognize how little, like, you know, I throw on some mascara and I'm curled this part of my hair, but not the back part of my hair because I don't have to be seen. <laughs> yeah. Got it. Yeah. But I also look at somebody like you that's had this journey, you know, with the very public stalking experience that you had mm -hmm. and what p power you have, like, to overcome that. And, and do you feel like that's kind of like part of the journey? Like, I'm so amazed that you didn't just quit after that stalking experience. Um, yeah, sometimes I'm amazed I didn't too. <laughs> but, um, yeah. No, I was determined nobody was going to take my life away from me. And I, yeah. I mean that literally and figuratively in this case. Um, and you know, you just put one foot in front of the other every day and little by little. I mean, yeah. granted, I was afraid to work for a while. There's no doubt about it. I did sort of disappear yeah. for a while because I was afraid. Um, but eventually, eventually it just, I, I had to get back. I had to get my life back. Yeah. And so do you just put it in a pocket of your conscious now that you're able to be free? Because you're such... A public figure and you're so beloved by your fans that it must be hard to completely let your guard down. Um, yeah, I can't really let my guard down entirely. And it's interesting because during COVID, I'm doing something that people have wanted me to do forever, which is to write my memoir because I have had a few interesting life experiences. So, um, yeah. and one thing I will be anxious to explain is that um, I, I'm afraid always when a fan will come up to me or a person will come up to me, I try to be as nice and warm and welcoming as possible. But after the stalking experience, it's a subconscious thing. You, I, I, I can't, there's a little heartbeat of distance I need, you know, and mm -hmm. it, it's not that I want it. It's just there. So you must have always, you just have his, his image in your mind for, all your live shows mm -hmm. and live appearances. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah, that's that's power to me. I think you're I think that's power. 
Where do you get that from? I think everybody has that power. Survival is survival, you know, and, and when something like that happens to you, you, you either fold up and die or you live. And that's what I chose life. So mm. that's what you do. But then it was yeah. so interesting. And I remember people pointing this out to me, the documentary. Um, somehow in my mind, I didn't make the connection of me having been a stalking victim and then producing this, this Me Too documentary. And um, mm -hmm. apparently it's obvious to everybody else, but was not to me. I don't know if that was self-protection or, or what it was, but um, it, so doing the documentary was both therapeutic and triggered a lot in me as well. You know, it was both. So, yeah. But it is interesting that that was the story that, actually then made me take a, a, an interesting new path in my career as well you know so maybe some good can come from bad <laughs> I mean I do have to believe that you know that's I don't know it's sort of a Buddhist philosophy I'm not even a Buddhist but saying that everything's perfect so even that horrible experience that we went through maybe it gave you the level of compassion to create rocking the couch documentary which is Absolutely. extraordinary. And that's going to, that, that documentary is going to help people just by watching it. It's going to, I hope power. so. That's, it's that's the die. idea of it, you know, is to help people yeah. to, to sort of explain the situation to, um, and not in the um, splashy Hollywood way that I think the Harvey Weinstein thing was often covered. You know, we wanted to cover the, the truth of the situation, talk to people who maybe weren't huge stars, maybe, talk to people whose lives were totally affected by, by this sort of underbelly sickness that had always existed in Hollywood. Harvey Weinstein was hardly the first, or Bill Cosby was hardly the first. It's been going on. It probably went on in vaudeville. We just don't know about it. <laughs> but, yeah, but well, uh, what is a Fatty Arbuckle story, right? That you opened right, the documentary exactly. talking about exactly. that. Like, mm -hmm. like, it's been happening for as long as Forever. there's been couches. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so you, how, tell me how it came about this project, because as you said, you never wanted to be a producer and yet this project came along and you're like, guess I'm going to be a producer now. Well, yeah. And when I say never wanted to, I mean, the, I toyed with the idea, but I never made any actual steps towards it. And then um, I was having coffee with my partner, Min Collins, who is um, one of the other executive producers. And uh, he was a, an executive producer and a director of a film I had done called Hit List. And we had become fast friends ever since I did it. He's, he's truly one of my best friends. Uh, we, we get along fabulously. So we regularly meet for coffee. So that's what we're doing. And it was the day um, I think the whole Harvey Weinstein thing broke. And we happened to be having coffee. So we're talking about it. And I remember us both kind of saying, well, you know, people are going to make documentaries about this. And we just kind of looked at each other and was like, okay, let's do this. Mm -hmm. And that's literally how we got started. And then we just started talking about the approach we wanted and the approach we wanted being that we wanted to, um, we wanted to discuss the term, the casting couch, because, because sexual harassment of women and men, it does happen to men too, but of women primarily in the workplace has existed forever. 
You know, it's in, and it's in every business. It's not like it's only in the entertainment industry. But we happen to have the only industry where it's a joke. Like if you were to talk to somebody anywhere and use the term the casting couch, they a little smirk, you know, a little yeah. laugh. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. But, right. you know, it's not funny. You know, and I think that's kind of how we wanted to approach it. Why is it so prevalent in the entertainment industry? And why is it a joke? You know, because it, it's not funny. Why is yeah. this so much a part of this industry? So we wanted to explore the history of it. We wanted to talk uh, to people who could bring alive some of that history of it and uh, what's currently going on and, and explain it by the people explaining it. And we have a lot of actresses in there who aren't that well known. And it's like some of them really gave up their careers to try to fight for right. You know, and they were told by our unions, by other people, that if they pursued this, they would never work again. And essentially, that is what happened. And, mm -hmm. um, but yet these women were brave enough to step forward, to try to do something about it, to not just go along with it. And we thought their stories, and in particular, a story of a talent agent that 12 women took to court, um, I thought that was amazing bravery on their part such courage yeah, yeah. you know and i knew nothing of that story before doing this documentary i'm like why didn't i know why was there not more press about this right so um that's the kind of stories we yeah. wanted to tell i think that and it reflects like what you just said about yourself though that the the want to live versus the want to give up your life for mm -hmm. your um you're victimizers like it's, it's too great it's too great a passion to lose like we love our jobs so much yeah it's a part of us it's yeah. a huge part of us mm -hmm. you don't want to give that up but these women knew they were risking that they knew mm -hmm. and they did lose that but hopefully they gained their self-respect and hopefully now we've given them a little bit of um recognition a little credit for it because they deserved it yeah yeah it's an amazing it's an amazing journey and you're right there it you know we smirk about it we make jokes about casting couch-esque things and uh -huh. there are people that existed through it that there's nothing funny about that experience yeah there isn't and granted we're talking as women in this very time in this very movement where all of a sudden people are realizing how unfunny it is. Um, but since this movement is existing and it does appear to the, be the time when people are really looking at this problem head on, you know, I'm, I'm happy to have been able to contribute something to it, you know, to, to yeah. look at this problem head on and honestly. And sitting in that coffee shop when you, when you were chatting with your friend about Let's make this documentary. Did you imagine <laughs> what it was going to be like? Like, did you imagine how hard it was going to be? Because I know producing is harder than anybody imagines it to be. Yeah, no, I didn't. But that, that in itself was very gratifying and very um, uh, worthy of my time, certainly. And there were also other pluses of it. If you look in the credits, uh, my daughter is an associate producer on the film. I have a 16-year-old girl. She was 14, I think, at the time. We were shooting it wow. and, and she wanted to, she, she wants to be in the industry 
and she happened to be home from school and I had to go go to work and she wanted to come with me and I remember I'm having this moment thinking to myself do I want her to hear all this stuff do I want her to you know yeah and then my end decision on it I said look why don't you come you can you know do a little work on it for the day and you're going to hear stories and I think it's valuable for you to hear these because if you want to go into this industry you have to protect yourself and you can't mm -hmm. protect yourself from something you don't know exists wow. so my end decision was to have her here and to have her know what it is she has to protect herself against wow can you imagine at 14 gosh what were you doing at 14 i was collecting stickers can you imagine at 14 having that kind of amazing experience <laughs> Uh, well, I was already working when I was 14, so I was already on sets at that time. And, but, um, but yeah, I mean, I, I almost think that's something that you can't be too young to learn. You need to know. You need to know as a woman, because you hear about these horrible things that happen to young girls. And some of the reasons it happens is because they don't know about it. They, right. if, if you don't know evil exists, again, you can't protect yourself. You have to yeah. know. Yeah, I mean, there's definitely a level of um, awareness that I think is important for men and women, like Absolutely. for kids, just to be aware yeah. for how, like, you know, teach your son, you know, when you're walking home late at night and you see a woman, uh -huh. maybe cross the street to give her some space and make her right. feel safe, like Absolutely. that kind of education. And I always feel yeah. bad in talking about this, like that bad things don't happen to men, but they do. And they, they can be sexually sure. harassed. Yeah. And Totally. And we have to acknowledge that. However, it is a problem that appears to affect women more. Um, but it's not right. like it doesn't happen to them. So everybody needs to know. No. And men need to know, like you said, how to behave to make women feel safe, you know, so that they are right. never put in a position to be falsely accused or to be, you know, ha have their activities yeah. questioned, you know. No, this issue goes all the way around. If I, if I had sons, I'd be busy telling them how to treat women, and then also how to make sure they don't get falsely accused. You know, it's because um, it's, it's a difficult situation all the way around. Yeah, I was thinking like the other day how our job is to make people feel safe, right? So it's like when people mm -hmm. come over to your house, how do you make them feel comfortable in your home? You offer them Correct. a glass of water, a cup of tea, you yes. give them somewhere comfortable to sit. So how do you right. do that in the world? Yeah, it's true. And that's genderless. Like, how do we yeah. make each other feel safe? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we all have to learn that. That's a good point. So tell me, tell me what the lessons were you learned as a, as a producer and tell me if it made you want to do more or less producing. Um, I actually want to do more producing. I, I, um, I don't want to leave acting to produce. I want to do both but um, I enjoyed the producing. I think that was the biggest lesson for me is I did enjoy being in charge. You know, it, it was very, um, it was very liberating. It was very, um, I think not necessarily what people would have thought for me. Um, Why do you think that is? Uh, I think that a lot of that is the parts I've played, things like that, that I think um, I might be perceived in a certain way that I am really not. Um, right. I've always played very glamorous women, very uh, sexual women, very, um, but I've rarely ever had a job on television or film. <laughs> <laughs> but that's saying like, so that, that's saying like people think that if you're sexual or glamorous, you also can't be like a powerful 
a CEO or something. Yeah. But you know, a my, my career's yes. been for a long time. Yeah. So maybe back in the eighties, that was a little harder to imagine, you know, right. I think um, she can think only many, be yeah. glamorous. I always joke with my daughter about some of those things. I said, yeah, back in the seventies, the eighties, you kind of had to pick a lane. Either you were beautiful or smart because nobody wanted you to be both. <laughs> right. Oh my gosh. That's, that's like saying, what's your job? My job is being glamorous. That's what yeah. I do. And I literally have hardly ever played anybody with a job. In fact, I, I joke that right. on the Bay, the series I've been doing now, I, I own um, uh, Patrick's Roadhouse. I, I own a restaurant and I'm like, oh, I have a job. <laughs> <laughs> this is very exciting. Yeah. <laughs> so, so do you think um, people are shocked by you stepping into this producing role? Not if they know me personally, no. Um, perhaps some people that have followed my career might be, but I think that's a good lesson to learn too. And I think um, we have to learn that you don't have to pick lane as a woman. You know, we can be all those things. And right. we're lucky enough to live in an age where we can be all those things. Yeah. What's the thing you're most proud of in um, rocking the couch as a producer? I think um, I'm very proud behind the scenes that I was there for every interview. Um, I wanted to be really? there for every, for every woman who is telling her story because my two other executive producers are men. Um, not that they can't be sensitive or all those things because they are and wonderful guys. But I wanted there to be a woman in the room, a woman that had been in the business a long time, a woman that they knew would understand so that they could feel um, safe enough to open up and tell their stories. And mm -hmm. um, I'm very proud and happy I was able to do that because this is a difficult subject. A lot of yeah. these women had never told their stories. And um, we made a personal choice not to tell who the men were in cases where we knew people might know who the men were. That was not our job. Our job was to tell it from the women's side and to have them tell how it had affected them, how it, um, how it had affected their lives without the worry of them being, you know, sued or attacked because of it or whatever. Um, but I was proud to have been there. It was hard to sit through those conversations. Um, yeah. And in two of them, <laughs> even though they didn't tell me who the person was, I knew who the person was. And I yeah. knew as they were telling me, I'm like, if you could have seen my eyes, I'm sure I'm like, oh my God, I know this person. Mm -hmm. I never knew this person that way, but I know this person. Yeah. And, um, but I'm very proud I could be there so they could feel safe. Of what you yeah. see on the camera, other than that, again, the Wallace K case where the guy was taken to court, I was very proud to have um, brought that out again into the public domain. I, I was proud to talk about these brave women and what they did. And um, one woman who really got to me was the uh, policewoman who went undercover in her documentary. Yeah. Oh, yeah. that was so oh, interesting. It was so interesting. Right, because you forget, like, she was violated too. Sure, right. she knew she was stepping into a place where she had potential of being, right. viola being violated, but that's, like, she must have felt, uh, yeah, 
I can't imagine. Yeah, and to hear her, in your job. It also puts it in perspective because you got to imagine a police woman sees a lot of stuff, a lot of negative stuff her whole career that you and I are shielded from. We don't see. But seeing the look in her mm -hmm. eyes and hearing her talk about this, how she was violated as well, it just brought it all very clearly into focus what these women went through. Yeah. So, yeah, she, she really, to me, was one of the most touching things in the whole thing. Yeah, they, they brought out so many different angles to the story. And, uh, and it is such a great platform for those stories to be heard so that, you know, the more that we're, we're talking about, the more people will feel safe to bring forward their own stories and not feel as alone. Right. right. Yeah. And that's kind of the whole purpose. Also, we have the, the um, criminal attorney who comes in, who, who very clearly also taught me that was important to define the definitions, because I think we in the general public uh, intersperse sexual abuse, sexual harassment, not realizing that they are actually different things. You know, mm -hmm. at very different things, very different crimes, very different penalties for those crimes and, you know, very different. So I think there's a lot of educational things in there for, for people as well. Yeah. Yeah. And because I think that people, I mean, I do, I, I, when the Me Too movement started, I started reflecting and realizing that I had been sexually harassed, but belittled it because I was mm -hmm. like, oh, no big deal. Like he just said something inappropriate or he just like right. slapped my butt. That's an right. But then realizing that's not like, that's not Property. okay. And we right. sort of let it go because of, I don't know, because of the era, because of the circumstances and it's not yeah. okay. I mean, a lot of it is the era. I mean, I don't think you're going to find an attractive woman anywhere in any business that has not had some of this to deal with. I think we as women, it, it just becomes part of our, our lives, you know? And I think in eras gone by, we very much did, as you said. So we slapped my butt. So I, you know, get past that. No big deal. Get past that. Yeah. Yeah. No big deal. Or what woman has not walked by say a construction site and not been hooted and hollered at and, and made so totally uncomfortable that you would rather walk blocks out of your way than to go by that mm -hmm. construction site. Right. But thinking like going back to what we were talking about power, like I, I was under the impression that that was part of my power, which that really messed with my brain because as, as, as a young woman growing mm -hmm. up and getting that kind of tension, I'm like, Oh, that's powerful. It wasn't it really until. Yeah, sure. But it's not, that's, that's not my kind of power. I, you know what I mean? Like, mm -hmm. I think until I grew up and, and felt powerful in my talent and in my comedy that, that I find mm -hmm. pow power in that. Where right. do you find your power? Uh, again, my acting, you know, that's, that's my power. That's my, that's my gift. I find it in, greatly in motherhood. I find um, motherhood has been a very um, empowering experience um and and now in producing it is powerful to tell a story it is powerful to not yeah. just perform the story but to tell a story to to create that story in a way um, even though in a documentary you don't create the story you follow the story it's funny because people were when it was first time they're doing a documentary they're like oh well where did you get the script and i'm like there is no script it's a documentary i said it you get kind of an idea in your head and then 
you start shooting towards that idea, but then it changes. It's almost like a documentary writes itself. It, yeah. it, it leads you in directions that you have to go to follow that story. I, I think it's, that's why it's like a, almost like a cross between a regular film and journalism in that because it, the story takes you where it needs to go. And you, my job mm -hmm. as a documentary producer was to follow that story. Because again, when we started doing this film, I didn't know about the Wallace K case, which became kind of the centerpiece of the whole documentary. My partners did not know about it. Um, my husband actually is the one who first told me about it. And I was like, what? This happened in the 90s and I'm in Los Angeles. I didn't hear anything about this. I'm like, how, yeah. how did that happen? And then we started researching it and researching it and, and it became the focus of the documentary. So it's, it's very powerful to tell that kind of story. Yeah. And the fact that you've never produced a documentary before must have been a uh, wild no journey to be on. <laughs> no idea. <laughs> but did, sometimes that's kind of powerful too, right? Because then you're Absolutely. like, look, I, I can admit, I don't know what I'm doing. I'm just going to keep Absolutely. going. Absolutely. When I was, I was, I was the one who was calling people up, finding them, convincing them to do the interview. And I'm like, oh my God, I can't believe I'm doing this. But um, yeah. I did it. And it was, um, yeah. again, I think when we go places we aren't used to going, when we stretch ourselves a bit, that's how we grow. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When's that's the last how... time you, you had like a growth spurt like this? That was a huge growth spurt. Um, yeah. Oh gosh, I um, probably the last time I had a growth spurt like that I remember was after recovering from from breast cancer and going back to work. Um, that was a very Ooh. difficult thing. Um, because I went challenging for you. Well, it was it was very challenging because cancer changes not only how you look at things but also how you look. You know, um, for me, when I went through breast cancer, um, it was right at the same time that we had gotten news that my, my primary program that people most remember me from, One Life to Live, was canceled. And I'm getting all this mail from fans and the show keeps bugging me saying they want me to come back on the show to tie everything up and how much the fans would like it. And I'm taking these calls while I'm getting chemotherapy and I'm bald as a cue ball. I don't have any eyebrows. I don't have any eyelashes. And I'm thinking, and Tina was like the most glamorous person around. That was her thing. So I'm like, how on earth am I going to do this? And I just said, yes, you know, bought a good wig. And my makeup artist, Renata, who is one of my dearest friends, we'd show up for work an hour early so she could glue the eyelashes to like my one existing eyelash on each eye and um you know i and just wow. do it but it was very yeah. hard to play this woman who was so the only real thing she was confident about her power came from how she looked right wow that, that must was been so extraordinary for you so to play that character for the first time, not being confident of how I looked was very difficult. It was very, very difficult, but it yeah. worked. And 
And I think, I mean, again, I think you're a pretty powerful person finding that inner strength somehow. Well, it's just, you know, I think that brought a vulnerability, as you said, to the role, you know, subconscious vulnerability that I think the audience picked up on because the audience loved the return. They felt they saw a new side to that character. And I think that's what that new side was because I was forever changed. Right. So the character, we share the same body. So the character had to get changed too. <laughs> yeah. Did they ever write anything into your character line about cancer? No, no. Or was that a discussion? Uh, no, it was never even a discussion, even though the executive producer knew. But, um, and you have to remember when I did go back to One Life to Live, it was, um, it was two weeks after I finished chemo. So it was very, very new and very um, fresh. Um, yeah. I didn't have a lot of energy, but I knew I had to do it. I had to do it for the fans. I did that one for them, without a doubt. And um, it, it worked out really well. But yeah, I felt extremely vulnerable, extremely. <laughs> Number one, I couldn't touch my eyes because if I touched my eyes, my, my eyelashes would have just... <laughs> you know, <laughs> falling right out. So no matter what I did, if I'm crying anything, it's like crying going, ah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what a crazy journey to be on. That's a, and I know, I know a lot of like, you know, you, you have such a responsibility to your fans because they are mm -hmm. so supportive and fantastic. Absolutely. You know. I love them. I love them. And I felt that responsibility to them. And I didn't want to to let them down. I didn't want to be, I, I didn't want to be incapable of being this glamorous woman that they admired for that, that they, that they looked for in that, even though the last thing I felt was glamorous or any, anything even remotely like that. So I just mm -hmm. kind of had to muster it up, you know? Was there ever a time that you were like, it's too much? No, no because that's the job I'm, you know, I'm lucky enough to have fans. So, yeah. you know, if I have to work harder to have them or to make them happy, then so be it. I'm, I'm a lucky girl. Yeah. What are you excited? So you've had this, you've had this taste of producing now. What are you excited about producing next? Something that's um, starring I, you maybe? <laughs> well, um, Maybe eventually I'll do a scripted something that I want to produce, yes. Uh, in fact, I have a, a project that I wrote with some people right now. But um, I also have another documentary that I've been doing the research on during these COVID times, because we all have the time to do it. Um, I want to do an honest, um, true history of the soaps, because I think there have been histories of the soaps, oh. but I don't think they've covered things the way they should have. Um, I think yeah. I want to cover it again from the history of it, of, of serialized magazines, which were in the 1800s, and then how it became serialized silent movies, and then films, and then to TV and, and radio, um, how, how it all came about, and people's fascination with those kind of stories, of being able to follow a character from, from like in my case on One Life to Live, to follow her from being a teenager to, to a middle-aged woman. How, you know, 
but people want to see that. They want to grow with that character. They want to see that character grow. And this is not a new form of entertainment. It's existed forever. It still exists. I always say Star Trek is a soap in space. Absolutely. You know? It's like, because um, <laughs> you want to see those characters. You want to see what they do, you know? Yeah. Um, and I think, so I'm, I'm kind of toying with that idea. Yeah, what do you think that people don't know about soaps that you're excited to reveal? Um, I just think, I think the history of it, how it came about, how it is so prevalent, how so much of our t entertainment is based on that same philosophy. And um, I don't think soaps get the respect they deserve. Um, oh my God, was a, the line memorization alone, for goodness sakes. That yeah, muscle memory that soap opera actors have to do. Right, and it's, um, it deserves a whole lot more respect than it gets. I, I really do be firmly believe that. And I, I think there was a recent documentary, which will remain unnamed, that I thought really was very derogatory towards the mm. industry. And it really, again, I wasn't thinking about doing a documentary. And then everybody that I talked to about, they said, oh my God, you're so emotional about this. You should do a documentary about it. So I'm like, oh. Yeah. That's an idea. Yeah, I mean, it's a different world now, but I feel like, you know, as you said, Star Trek is a soap opera in space. It's just yeah. altered because of things like social media. So right. have you, I mean, I know you've grown through not having social media and now do, do you get involved a lot in your social media with your fans? What's your relationship like? I try to get involved with them as much as I can. I was late to come to the, to the game here on social media because I'm a very private person. So yeah, I didn't like the idea of posting pictures of myself and, and posting pictures of my family. And I was a bit reticent to do that, but it, it's a part of life today. And so I have jumped on like everybody else. And uh, there have been good things and bad things about it. I, you know, one of the best things is I have fans sending me pictures and videos of things I had long since forgotten. You know, and they wow. post it and I'm like, oh my gosh, I forgot all about that. Or, oh, this is great. Thank you, thank yeah. you, thank you so much. There are bad things as well. Um, but for the most part, it's great. And I, I have gotten to know somewhat some of my fans and um, they're all, for the most part, very nice and very respectful. And I think social media is here to stay. So you have to find some way to embrace it, still keep your privacy, but open yourself up a little to it. Yeah. I mean, you've got fans that have grown up with you, so you must have some really dedicated people around you that, that uh, admire what you're creating. I do, and they're so wonderful. And they're so, they've been so gracious and followed me from project to project. So again, I'm a lucky girl. I have nothing to complain about. I mean, about. I, I remember watching soap operas with my grandmother, who was, mm -hmm. I mean, I think she was 92 at the time. And, oh, wow. you know, she was a veterinarian and she, she was so involved. I would come home to see her and she'd say, well, David shot Nina. And I'd be like, <laughs> first of all, I knew a David and I knew a Nina, but the way she did it, it was so invested. And right. you know, like it just, it gives so much to so many people. I think it's, um, it's worthy, of, uh, worthy of exploring. You know, I'm so yeah. interested in this documentary because I think there is a whole level we don't know about it. Right, and I think the investment in it is, um, is huge. It's huge. Yeah. 
you know, and you, you, you love, you hate, you, you follow these. And I think the fact that in the daytime soaps, as opposed to, uh, again, a show that to me is a soap, but very glamorized, Grey's Anatomy. It's, it's, yeah. it's a primetime soap that happens to be about good medicine and they have actual medical things, which I find fascinating and are really wonderful. But you're, you're invested in those characters in the same way. Yes. And, um, but, but in the daytime community where you had shows lasting for 30, 40, I mean, 70 some years on The Guiding Light, which started on radio. Right. Right. You could not be any more invested in these people because you, you've grown up with them. You, they've been in your living room now for, for decades. You know, and it's very very unique. Um, I always, I don't like to wrap up because I could all talk to you for a hundred years. It's so delightful. But I usually wrap up with a couple of firecracker questions that are the same. Um, What do you want to be best known for? A great mom. Describe your present state of mind. Relaxed and nervous. (laughs) That's a fine, I absolutely understand that concept. Um, it, it, that, that, that's a I COVID totally reaction, get it. Right? That's, that's a, totally, a totally COVID reaction. Terrified <laughs> and hopeful. I get it. It's yeah. like everything. Yeah. It's everything yeah. all the time. What, what's something that people don't know about you? That I'm shy. I am a painfully oh. shy person. Yes. I, that does surprise me. That does surprise me. Um, what has been your favorite and there has to be another word for this, but a favorite mistake, a favorite thing that you thought was a mistake at at the time, but actually turned out to be a great thing. Uh, Meeting my husband. (laughs) Yes, I understand that too. (laughs) (laughs) Fill in the blank, a firecracker is? My daughter. My daughter is a firecracker. And I love that about her. That makes my heart sing. Um, what advice would you have given your younger self? To relax a little, not maybe, <laughs> um, not be in such a hurry for everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. I'm so excited to see what you do next. I really think you're such a powerhouse of a person uh, with oh, all the you. hats that you've worn. And I, I can't wait to see what you produce next. I mean, Rocking the Couch was a fantastic documentary and I hope everybody sees it I hope so too thank you so much and there you go one more Real Women's Network creator introduced to our community so go out there and and share some love with Andrea Evans I know you will I know you loved hearing her voice and her story so make sure you let her know Now, our first episode was with co-founder Crystal Chappelle, who launched this in partnership with Jessica and Linda Hill. And I talked to them the day before we launched officially over on our Facebook page. So if you didn't catch it, head over to facebook.com slash firecrackerdept to catch up with those Real Women's Network firecrackers. They're incredible. Linda and Jessica are, oh my gosh, you're gonna wanna, you're gonna wanna hear that conversation. You can follow Andrea on Twitter at AndreaEvansProd and check out our show notes for links to watch Rocking the Couch. We are so excited to share these creators with you. So make sure you're also following Real Women's Network. They're coming out with amazing stuff. And it's just, you know, share that firecracker love. Find them on Instagram at Real, R-E-E-L, Women's Network. Or if Twitter's your jam, find them at R-E-E-L, Women's, N-E-T-W. And the number one... In all cases, just check our show notes. It's all there for you. We put the links. We are 
on it for you. We are all over this just for you. So watch out for those new voices and check out what's available to stream right now at realwomensnetwork.com. And stay tuned to our socials at firecrackerdept for updates and all those announcements. Okay, there's a lot to do. There's a lot of love to share, but I promise you it's going to come back to you. We'll be bringing you a new creator from the Real Women's Network every month now. These filmmakers are from all over the world, so you'll really get a sense of like this little festival on a platform. So go check them out. So watch out for all these amazing new voices, new stories, and check out what's available to stream right now at realwomensnetwork.com. You're going to see some familiar names like Jen Pogue and Sarah Deacons who have been on the Firecracker Department team. And you're going to want to check back every month to see which filmmakers get a spotlight. We're working our way through all of them and at some point or other I'm going to get a chance to talk with each one of them. Stay tuned to our socials at FirecrackerDEPT for all the updates and all these firecrackery announcements. Big, big, big thanks to the team that puts the Spotlight series together from the Firecracker Department. I'm talking Sydney Nielsen, and they are just the best. They're doing all the editing, they're listening to all my flubs. I'm also talking Winnie Wong, who's just incredible. AJ does all the editing for our video. And then we've got Sarah Potter doing social media. And Carol Lowe, who's putting our teams together. It's like, it's like she's done a beautiful matchmaking. She's gone, hey, real women. Hey, Firecracker Department. You two must like each other. And we do. So thank you, team. Thank you, Firecracker Department. And thank you for listening, watching, engaging, and sharing. It really means a lot to us to build this beautiful community with you in it. I'm Naomi, and we're going to see you next time on the Firecracker Department. See ya. 